Now, for those of you that are uh, maybe not that familiar with Passover, you know that there's a lot that goes into it, uh, a lot of preparation that goes into the celebration of Passover, right? Uh, you know that um, if you uh, grew up with this tradition, uh, you know that, boy, uh, I mean, it, like, like I like to say, there's a lot of hard work that goes into remembering our freedom. You know what I mean? Uh, our freedom from slavery. A lot of hard work goes into that. And uh, that includes, uh, in a very traditional sense, some of you might have this memory, as, as I do, of changing all the dishes and pots and pans and silverware and everything in the, in the house, a big spring cleaning. And then, uh, you know, when I was uh, growing up, at least where I lived, the supermarkets did not have kosher for Passover uh, items. This was the time of year that the kosher butcher really made out, let me tell you. That uh, he was the, the go-to man. He was the supplier of all things kosher for Passover, uh, where I grew up. So uh, I remember, like, there'd be a line outside the door, the kosher butcher, uh, waiting uh, to go in uh, to get the matzah, to get the other foods, and everything kosher for Passover. So a big, it's a, it was a, it's a big deal, big deal of preparation. And so when we come to, then, the uh, Seder night, uh, a lot has gone into making this a special evening. You got to have the Seder plate, right? You got to have the maror, you have to have the, you know, the horseradish and the charosis, and everybody has their own recipe for that, you know. Uh, now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just sign up for the Seder. You'll get the whole, you'll get more than nine yards. We go the whole length of the field, okay? And, uh, uh, and then there's, of course, uh, uh, the, the entire, the, the meal, which is, uh, uh, you know, not for the faint of heart. You might end up faint of heart after you eat it, uh, but uh, uh, there's a lot that goes into it. So certainly we can get preoccupied with that, uh, and uh, it is important that it all looks nice. It is important that we do it well. It is important that we uh, eat these foods that remind us of the bitterness of slavery and the sweetness of redemption and all that. But just as important, and of course more so in the big scheme of things, is that we set the table spiritually, right? That we are prepared uh, for uh, this holiday, prepared for this uh, celebration. So, so then the question is, so what, what does that mean? How do we prepare for it? Well, one is to remember the story, remember uh, what takes place. And, uh, and I thought we would take a look at a, a few verses and observe a few things in both the Torah and in the uh, B'chadashah about Passover. So first, in uh, Exodus chapter 6, this is where God explains to Moses a little bit more detail of what he's going to do. He's already said it in the third chapter at the burning bush, but now in chapter 6, uh, he gives Moses uh, a, uh, a, little bit more, a little bit more detail. Okay? Okay. So here in chapter 6, we read at the beginning of the chapter, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out of his land. 
God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, yud heh vav Adonai, the unpronounceable name, Jehovah, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I think I've covered all the bases there. Uh, I did not make myself known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. So that's interesting, you know, that he says here, uh, I'm going to reveal myself in a different way. Certainly, uh, you can look up in a concordance uh, all the places where uh, yud heh vav heh Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah, is used in Genesis, in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it doesn't mean that the name has never been uttered or that they were not familiar with it. It's not what it means. Okay? What he's saying here is, is that generally speaking, generally speaking, God, the God of Israel, was known through the patriarchs as the sovereign, the almighty, El, uh, the one who is the invisible, one and only God of the Jewish people. But now, from now on, and beginning right here with the redemption out of Egypt, primarily, God is going to be known as the Redeemer, as the Deliverer, as the one who redeems, as the one who, is, the one who delivers. And it's true. When you read, for example, through the Psalms, when you read uh, through the entire Bible, we read episode after episode after episode of the primary thing God does in one way, shape, or form is deliver his people out of, out of situations or out of trouble. Uh, and uh, uh, here he says, now this is how Israel is, gonna, is going to know me, my uh, personal being. This is when, when he says here, by the name Lord, he means specifically uh, this God of Israel, his personal name. And his personal name is going to be synonymous with deliverer. All right? Now, let me say this before we go on. It is important to know that uh, in Hebrew, when he talks about they knew me as God Almighty, in Hebrew, and, and you may be familiar with this. There are two general name, two general uh, uh, basic names of God, right? One is El, and the other is uh, we say Adonai, right? So El is the generic name of God, just like we would say God, God in our world. If you go up and down the street in any neighborhood and you say to people, "Do you believe in God?" Probably most people are going to say yes. What that means. Who knows, right? It is deity, a generic name. If you asked a, uh, a Hindu person, do you believe in God? Yes. Do you, uh, you ask a Muslim person, do you believe in God? Yes. Ask a Jewish person, do you believe in God? Yes. Ask a Christian person, do you believe in God? Yes. Uh, ask a uh, whatever is in between. Uh, all of the varieties of types of, of belief systems, do you believe in God? Yes. In fact, I believe in God so much, I believe in lots of them. You know, uh, who knows? So it's a generic name. And generally speaking, 
when we say God, we mean one who is all-powerful. may raise questions to us of, you know, how powerful is he if you see the world the way it is, and people raise, you know, uh, kinds of uh, questions about it. But God, he's the one who knows everything. He's everywhere. He's, uh, you know, has these uh, generic kinds of attributes, right? But you see the name Adonai, the name yud heh vav the personal name of God, is unique to the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, okay? Uh, and what he's saying here is primarily, I'm going to be known as the Deliverer, the Redeemer. Across the boards, one of the things that most belief systems have in common is that there is a God there or God's and he is all-powerful, and we must obey him. But what is unique, and when you go back in history to the God of the Jewish people, is, is that he takes a personal interest and concern and has a particular love for his creation, for mankind. That is what is unique about the God of the Jewish people. Now, interesting. We read, uh, this is a little side note, you know, in Luke chapter 2, when uh, Yeshua is brought into the temple, and Simeon is there, and, and he says, uh, a light unto the uh, Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. A light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Now, you know, we usually just pass over that uh, and say, oh, so he's a light to the nations, and so on and so forth. But he's saying something very specific in that to the Jewish people, uh, who Yeshua is, is the glory of Israel. He's the greatest Jew there ever was, the one who is going to bring us back to the place that we know about, that we know that he's the Redeemer, because we know about the Passover celebration. We know uh, from the Torah that he is the Redeemer. But only in the Messiah can we ex really experience that redemption. To the nations, now, again, when he says there in um, Luke chapter 2, the Gentiles, he doesn't mean like people who are not Jewish but grew up in a church uh, uh, that uh, knows, knows who God is. Okay, do, do we understand that? Okay, that in Luke chapter 2, he's talking about people who are absolute pagans because in those days... Gentiles were people who were like worshiping trees or Greek gods or uh, uh, other than whatever it is other than the God of Israel. They did not know about worshiping the God of the Jewish people. People today that grow up in churches know about worshiping the God of Israel, whether they understand that or not, whether they understand the Jewish roots of the faith or not. That's not the point. The point is, is that they, they have a New Testament, they read about Yeshua, they, they, uh, they're familiar uh, with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, familiar uh, with, um, I, hopefully, um, the parts of the uh, Torah and, and the Psalms and Messianic prophecies. So in Luke chapter 2, when we read a light to the Gentiles, he's not talking about people like that, Okay. He's talking about people that know nothing about who the one and only God of Israel is. And so, in Yeshua, the, the nations 
learn about the fact that God is indeed a redeemer. He is a deliverer. And so, to those pagans, there in the, uh, in the first century, their introduction to the God of Israel, the God of the Jewish people, is in Yeshua. And so learning about, oh, he is a deliverer. He is a redeemer. He really loves us. That is, and that is new information. Okay? For Israel and for, for the Jewish people in the first century, the new information is, is that, wow, this can be personalized in my own life and that Yeshua is the incarnation of God, the redeemer, the deliverer. See? And so today, uh, if we are a Messiah follower, regardless of who we are, Jew or Gentile, we are familiar with this. We are familiar with, oh, God is a redeemer. Uh, in fact, we're probably so familiar with it, it's almost like uh, taken for granted. Of course, of course God loves you. Of course God cares uh, about you. That's sort of like uh, the party line, you know? That's kind of, yeah, of course, conventional wisdom. It is not, this was radical news, both to uh, Moses uh, and to the Jewish people when they were enslaved in Egypt. And this certainly was radical news in the first century that this could be experienced personally uh, in your life. Okay? In fact, I was saying to someone yesterday that, uh, you know, as a result of Yeshua coming into this world, now you have a situation where it is common knowledge around the world uh, what the Ten Commandments are. Now, I know, I know. Oh, but our kids aren't taught it in school anymore. I know. But you have to appreciate the fact that globally, people are, generally speaking, aware of these uh, uh, moral, ethical laws in the Torah. That came as a result of Yeshua coming into this world and people receiving him into their lives, right? Uh, and that the Jewish uh, scriptures became the Old Testament of the, the Christian Bible. Uh, and and uh, uh, the, you could say that the Hebrew scriptures became the scriptures of the, Christian, uh, of the Christian Bible along with the New Covenant. As a result of that, the, the basics of who the God of Israel is has spread around the world. Whether people believe it or they don't believe it or understand how Jewish it is or not, uh, the fact that people are aware of the basics of the law of Moses, whether they call it the law of Moses or not, uh, is as a result of the Messiah coming into the world and recognizing that, okay, he is the uh, Redeemer. In fact, just the idea, God is love, you know, you might see it on a Hallmark card or something. You know, God is love. So general. So, you know, it's, it's a radical truth. It's a radical truth from the Bible. God is love. God delivers. God redeems. So here in chapter 6, this is what God is saying to Moses. Okay? That this is how I'm going to be known. So then he says here, he's going to say how, how that's going to take place. He says in verse 5, And furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you uh, for, for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Now, you know, the next verse is very interesting also. It says, So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. So first what we see here uh, is God says what he's going to do. And the key terminology actually in Hebrew is, I'm going to bring you out. Okay, I'm going to bring you out. In fact, if you look in Hebrew for the word deliver, deliverance, basically you don't get a word that just means deliver or deliverance. You either get uh, natan, I'm giving you, like giving you over or being given over or, or I've, I'm taking you out. So like, for example, you read like, uh, you read even in the New Covenant the same way that uh, Yeshua, the Son of Man, is delivered uh, to death or delivered out of, uh, uh, you know, delivered out of sin or people are delivered out of sin. In, uh, the, uh, in this very passage is the perfect illustration, actually, because literally in verse 6, when it says, uh, I am the Lord, it says, I will bring you out from under the burden of the, of the, bur- burden of the Egyptians. And then literally it could say, it could say, I will bring you out from their bondage. The exact same word is used. There's not a different word between bring you out and deliver. It's just the same word is repeated. Okay? And then it said, but then you have a different word. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So I am going to uh, uh, redeem you as in uh, bring you out and I'm going to buy you back. Right? I'm going to pay a price and I'm going to bring you out. So through, from this point on, when you read in many, many different passages about Israel being delivered, people being delivered, uh, this is what God does. Something else that is an interesting observation about the text. And you know, that's something that we can all do. If you have just a concordance or you just read the Bible, right? Uh, uh, in English, it's fine you, because you, you, you basically uh, uh, get it. You can, um, you can observe a number of things. One of them is you do not read in the text anywhere about Passover that it says that he freed us. Isn't that interesting? It says he delivered us. Uh, he redeemed us. But it never actually says he freed us. That's, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting observation. We are free from the bondage of the Egyptians. No doubt. But what it tells me, what it says to me is, is that the emphasis, and I'll say this in the New Covenant, it's only in selected places also about being freed from the bondage of sin. Being like in Romans 8, freed from the uh, uh, sin and death. But when it talks about specifically what Yeshua did, there are a few places, but the primary terminology, the primary terminology is redeemed, been redeemed or delivered. And that's rather interesting. 
what it says to me is, is that the primary thing for us to get is that what God has done, he has taken us out of this bondage to uh, people and things that keep us from uh, uh, following him and living for him. Whether that is the uh, Pharaoh in Egypt uh, or sin and temptation in our lives. That is the primary message that we get from uh, a Passover. That God freed us from uh, bondage. And that's exactly what you see here. Uh, again, nowhere in this passage and other passages do we see, and I will free you. He says, I will, uh, I will take you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. Okay? Now, you could say, well, they're kind of like synonyms. Not really. They're not exactly synonyms. They're actually saying something a little different. Okay? Uh, these are terms of movement. I will take you out. I'll remove you. Uh, I'm going to move you from this place to this place. Now, the redemption, the deliverance, when you read, uh, you know the story of Passover, the, the ten plagues and so on, and we will retell it on um, uh, uh, Saturday night at our, at our Seder, and, and hopefully you will also on Friday night, that um, you know that after that took place, in the wilderness, you know, what did the people want to do when they got into the wilderness? They wanted to go back. Right, because they found it to be more difficult outside of Egypt than being inside of Egypt, and so this redemption, this uh, deliverance, certainly didn't mean being freed of trouble, because they had plenty of trouble in the wilderness and beyond. When has there not been trouble for Israel? There is no time when there has been no trouble. And so when we think about being redeemed, we think about being delivered, according to the, the paradigm, the model that we have here, it cannot mean that now I'm on easy street. So it can't mean that. Okay, we can cross that off the list. When the Jewish people came out of Egypt, also it seems just by reading the narrative, they couldn't just do what they wanted to do either. Like, you know, uh, we're free. Now let's go to the airport and we're going to fly anywhere we want to go. Oh yeah, there were no airplanes. Or now we're free. We can just eat, drink, and have a great time. Well, I think that uh, there is a particular narrative in the book of Exodus uh, where they tried that, right? But it didn't work very well, right? That's uh, in chapter 32 in the, uh, of uh, Exodus about the golden calf, right? Well, Moses, we don't know where Moses is. If he's, we don't know if he's coming back or not. So let's make gods. Let's do whatever we want to do. And, uh, uh, and it's actually in the movie, The Ten Commandments, depicted in a very interesting way. Uh, and it was just licentiousness and hedonism. That's what is pictured. And that's indeed what it was. So freedom doesn't mean that. Okay, so wait a minute. It doesn't mean not having trouble. And it doesn't mean doing whatever I want to do as uh, I'm moved by my spirit, right? Hmm. Okay, well, that kind of uh, puts a real damper on this whole freedom business. 
uh, you know. Uh, and so what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it's interesting that it seems here again in Exodus chapter 6, God gives us an idea of, of what that means, even though he doesn't use the word freedom. He describes it. Okay? So when he says, I'm going to take you out from under their bondage, I'm going to deliver you from, or take you out from under their burden, deliver you from their bondage, redeem you with an outstretched arm. But then he says, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So it seems that uh, to be free, because that's what they will be when they're delivered, he says, I will take you for my people. So what does that mean? I will take you for my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And then he says, and I'm going to bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So evidently, to be redeemed, to be uh, delivered, does of course mean to be free from that bondage. But then it means to belong to God, to be his people, to have this uh, intimate relationship uh, with God, and that there is a destiny for that. He says, I'm not just taking you out and and, uh, you know, I'll be your God, but I'm bringing you somewhere. That, that in other words, uh, there's somewhere we're going, right? And so there is uh, Eretz Yisrael, the promised land. And the idea, of course, is they're going to go there. We know, the, we know a little bit more from after this passage. So we know that they're going to go there and that there's going to be a particular way to live there to honor and serve God. And there's going to be satisfaction there. It's very interesting the way it's all described. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 for a minute, when Moses is describing the land, actually, I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter, of chapter 8, first eight or nine verses here. It says, All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. This, of course, takes place on the plains of Moab just before they enter the land, of course. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your food swell these 40 years. Foot, swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep my commandments, keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land uh, that he has given you. Okay. Those 10 verses are a wonderful description uh, of uh, 
what it means to have been delivered and what it means to have been redeemed, what it means, therefore, to belong uh, to God. And this wilderness wanderings and entering the land is a model for all people who identify with the God of the Jewish people, the God of Israel, with Yeshua. Okay? That's why you read about the wilderness wanderings a lot uh, in other places in the Tanakh and in the New Covenant. It's interesting that Paul says in 1 Corinthians very specifically that when he says this happened to them, he's talking about the time in the wilderness. That wilderness time uh, is narrated and written for us that we might understand some very clear truths about what it means to know the God of, of Israel. Okay? So what we see here, first of all, notice in verse 1 and verse 10, okay? When you read the Bible and you read a particular section, it's always important to look at that, the beginning of it and the end of it, because sometimes they say kind of the same thing, okay? Uh, and then in between, there's a description of, of whatever that is. So you notice in verse 1 of chapter 8, he talks about the commandments, Notice he doesn't say, all the commandments that I'm commanding you to do today, you shall be careful to do. And they're going to be really hard, and, and you're going to really like hate your life because you have to do them. Uh, and you're going to wish you were somebody else, and they're like really impossible, uh, you know, and oy, 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 oy. You notice it doesn't say that, okay? But that's how, we all, that's how they're taught sometimes, or that's how they're described. But it does say, all the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply. Those are good things. And go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your forefathers. Okay? Wow. So God gave the commandments so that the people would really enjoy their lives. Then if you go down to verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. So not only the commandments are good for the people to help them enjoy their lives. But living in the land also, on top of the commandments, living in the land is, is it's a good land. It's a fantastic land. Uh, and, and you'll notice how it's described. You know, when I was in Israel, I saw, I saw farms that grow figs and pomegranates. Uh, and uh, so it's true to its word. But Moses is describing the land in this magnanimous kind of way. You talk about a vision statement. This is a vision statement. You know? They could not see it. And Moses drew this picture for them of where they were going. You see? And how good it is. That's very motivating. Now, getting back to verse 1, when he says, All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply in the land. May I suggest that the law of Moses, in and of itself, was at that time, and in certain respects even today, a vision of the future. Almost all of what you read in the Torah, almost all of it is about human relationships and about treating people as true human beings created in the image and likeness of God. When the, when the law of Moses was given to the Jewish people in the wilderness, you'll, you'll notice that almost always it says, when you enter the land, when you enter the land, this is how you're going to live. This is a description of your way of life when you enter the land. Now, certainly, uh, they needed to begin living that way and trusting God in the wilderness. 
but primarily it was for when you enter the land. You're going to live this way, and I'm going to bring you into this land. Okay? Now, everything hinged, though, on people trusting God. They had to trust God. We know that from the book of Numbers, right? What is the sin that kept them the entire generation out of the land? What is the sin that kept an entire generation from experiencing the blessings of being redeemed? It was not the golden calf. It was not trusting God and this promise of entering this land and that this is what the land would be like. Remember the story of the spies, right? They go to the land, they come back, it's all bad news. There's no way. There's no way we're going to be able to enter this land. Yep, oh boy, it's a great land, but there's no way we're going to be able to enter into this land. And only Joshua and Caleb said, no, God promised it, and we're going to trust him, and we're going to enter this land. It was because of their unbelief that they could not experience the fruit of redemption, and the fruit of deliverance. Hey, they were freed. They were freed from the bondage of Egypt. But what is freedom? Freedom from the Bible point of view, is trusting God and walking in his ways and in his purposes. Not doing whatever we want to do because now I'm out from under the hook. I'm forgiven so it doesn't matter what I do. No, it matters tremendously because now, see, it's a lot harder to live out in the wilderness than it is in Egypt. See, in Egypt, we can say, well, we're forced to live this way. We're in bondage. But when you're out of the bondage, you enter into, we, we enter into now uh, this opportunity of trusting God. And you see, now there's all this responsibility, this responsibility of choosing God. Isn't that what we read in the Torah? Choose life. That's the word that's given, you know, at the end of Deuteronomy. That's what Moses says, that when all is said and done, choose life. What did Joshua say? As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Right? Uh, in the wilderness, people chose to build the golden calf. People chose not to believe the promises of God. See? So in some ways, you know, free, freedom isn't all it's cracked up to be. Freedom is now the opportunity to serve a God and trust him in his promises. And so we know that that generation died in the wilderness. And we know from the book of Hebrews, in the third and the fourth chapters, this is all described, right? And, and, and we read, don't harden your heart like they did. And why is it that they did not enter? Because of unbelief. And the writer of Hebrews is begging these people, don't be like your ancestors in the wilderness who did not trust God, but rather trust what you don't see. And that is what a lot of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is. For example... In uh, that uh, book of the Bible, first of all, in the um, third chapter, you read here uh, verse 17. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you should seem to have come short of it. The point of the book of Hebrews, it's written very rhetorically. It's as if you uh, have someone you love who is saying to you in a, in a conversation, 
you know, I don't think I, I, don't think I believe this anymore because life is so tough. And what, do you, what, what would you say to them? you say, where else are you going to go? There's nowhere else to go. Salvation is only in Messiah. Don't, don't give up the faith, you know? That is exactly how the book of Hebrews is written. And so you don't want to take the book of Hebrews and say, oh, you see, according to that, that means uh, uh, that uh, if I waver, I, I might uh, uh, lose my salvation and never have it again. No, this is said rhetorically. This is like begging. Don't give up the faith. I might say that to you sometime. You might say that to me sometime. It's not a theological statement. Uh, you know, it's not a, a, a statement of, a, of, a, of, a, of systematic theology. It is a statement of, of love, of saying to people, stick with the program. That's, what, that's how the book of Hebrews is written. It was oral. It was like a sermon, you might say. But now, if you go to chapter 11, this whole thing about unbelief, you notice it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Okay? And so we see that the faith that gains approval is one that is not necessarily based on what I see or what I feel or what I experience, but what I know to be true from promises of God. That is how the Jewish people entered the land. That is how that second generation entered the land. Now, back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we see God was preparing them uh, during that 40-year period. During that 40-year period, he was, he was preparing them. And he says, I tested you to see what was in your heart. Right? Uh, and, uh, and so he says that the goal of that was enjoying life in the land. That was indeed the goal. That was the goal of redemption. That was the goal of deliverance so that they would live for God and feeling and enjoying that satisfaction of living for God and, of course, being, therefore, then a testimony to the nations of who the God of Israel is. See? Uh, and that is exactly what God in Messiah uh, does uh, for us. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. At Passover, uh, we remember how uh, the Jewish people had to put the blood on the door, right? And we remember how the lamb died. And that uh, when God passed over all of Egypt, he knew that wherever he saw the blood of the lamb, there the wrath of God would pass over. And so Yeshua is the lamb. And when we have his blood on our heart, so to speak, the wrath of God passes over us. And we are delivered from uh, the bondage uh, of sin and death. And so what does that mean? That means, therefore, to live for God. It doesn't mean uh, that we escape trouble. And it doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want to do. It means now we have the opportunity to be who we really are called to be. And who are we really called to be? Men and women created in the image of God to serve him. And God has given us a way of life in which uh, indeed, to do that. So finally, in another place in the New Covenant, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read a great admonition about cleansing regarding and using Passover as the illustration. So when we're talking about preparing for 
setting the table, you might say, getting ready for this, we need to remember this whole issue of deliverance. And, and maybe this week, just sort of meditate on that. I've been delivered. I've been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. How am I on this journey? Am I trusting God? Am I experiencing uh, life you know, in the Lord? Uh, or what is holding me back, we might say, from experiencing uh, that life? Well, here we read this admonition in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Messiah, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Clean out the old leaven, he says. He's using this metaphor of Passover. Clean out the leaven, just like we clean out the leaven from the house. He's saying, basically, uh, we might uh, say in our world, take that uh, inventory of your life and pray that God might reveal to you where there's leaven and confess it so it can be removed and you're not encumbered by it. So you can be who you really are. Because in Messiah, we are, as it were, unleavened. For Messiah is our Passover sacrifice for us. He's saying to these people in Corinth who are letting sin run rampant in their congregation. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember that you really are unleavened because Messiah really is our Passover. And therefore, we have been freed from that bondage. And so, live for him. And how is that described? Sincerity and truth, as opposed to malice and uh, wickedness. And so, uh, let us, this uh, week, take that thought into our hearts. And may it be when we come to the Seder that we really are experiencing what that deliverance uh, and what that uh, uh, redemption really means. It means life indeed uh, in Messiah, uh, for Messiah is our Passover. And just there's one last thought, and that is, you know, we've been studying the book of uh, Daniel. Who was free and who was in bondage? May I suggest that Daniel and his friends were the people who were free, and that it was Nebuchadnezzar who was really the one in bondage. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we do indeed thank you for deliverance and redemption. We thank you, God, that redemption and deliverance doesn't mean that everything goes just the way we want it to go. It doesn't mean that we don't suffer. Lord, I think of uh, Paul in the Bible, who was a prisoner, yet he was the one who was delivered. He was the one who was redeemed, yet he was in shackles in this world. But Lord, thank you, God, uh, that uh, uh, we know that the one who is truly free is the one who identifies with the resurrection of Yeshua. The one who is really free is the one who is not encumbered by sin. The one who is really free is the one who can serve you, Lord. And we know that that happens via uh, identifying uh, in Yeshua and the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we no longer are slaves, but we are sons. Lord, we thank you, God, that no matter what it feels like or seems like, that in Yeshua we really are redeemed. And Lord, we look forward to that day when not only will we receive new bodies, but the whole world will be transformed. Because Lord, that is who you are. And we pray, Lord, that our world would know and accept and understand, Lord, that you are the deliverer. You are indeed the redeemer. 
And Lord, I pray, God, for all, for so many of this world who are uh, stuck in the quicksand of sin, Lord, that you would bring deliverance and that people might be able to really experience the truth that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, may we indeed, therefore, walk in his light. And God, we pray that at this season of the year, that uh, Passover would have that kind of personal meaning for us as we remember and thank you and appreciate our own personal deliverance and redemption. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen.